0: Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere. My name is Heather and today on the world's only, all Alice in Wonderland podcast, we are taking a break from our Through the Looking Glass wrap up to talk about a play I saw recently called Then She Fell. Why the break? Because I'm really behind on research, to be honest with you, and I need to make sure I have all my facts straight because the next part of Through the Looking Glass we are going to discuss is the mystery of the wasp in a wig. What's that? You listen to me read all of Through the Looking Glass to you and you don't remember any wasps? bewigged or otherwise? Exactly. That is what makes it a mystery. The Wasp in a Wig is supposedly the long lost chapter of Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there. It was finally published in 1977. My use of the word supposedly tells you that yes, there is some controversy about The Wasp in a Wig. And I would love to tell you all about it, but like I said, I'm going to wait just one more episode or two because I need to do a little more investigating. To be clear, I know my thoughts about this last episode, and I know what my theory is that I've never heard anywhere else, incidentally. But I want to make sure to be extra thorough and deliver the whole story on the history of the wasp in a wig to you, so I need to get my hands on a few crucial publications, most notably the corresponding 1977 issue of The Night Letter from the Lewis Carroll Society of North America and an old article from Smithsonian Magazine, which I swear was available online, but I can't seem to find again for the life of me. Back to today's topic, the play called Then She Fell, which is currently playing in Brooklyn, New York. One preamble, parents... Who listen to Alice's Everywhere with your kids? I know you're out there because many of you have been kind enough to contact me, which I totally appreciate. Parents, you might want to listen to today's episode first before playing it or not playing it for your kids. We will be discussing some adult themes today simply because the play deals with some adult themes. So just a little parental warning for you there. Then She Fell is an exemplification of immersive theater. I've heard some people describe immersive theater as, oh, you feel like you're part of the show. I think that is a very misleading descriptor that might actually turn people off because it sounds like maybe at some point you're gonna be thrust on stage with a spotlight on you and forced to sing Memory or something. That is not the case. I would describe immersive theater as, instead of sitting down and watching a play, you move about in a carefully controlled environment and sometimes get to interact with the performers. There's a play called Sleep No More that set the trend for the other immersive theater experiences that are happening in New York City right now. Sleep No More is loosely based on Macbeth, and I believe when you are in the audience, you get to wander around freely. That is not the case with Then She Fell. Then She Fell is a well-oiled machine. There is no wandering about. I'm going to read you the description of Then She Fell from the Third Rail Project's website, and then we'll go from there then she fell is a fully immersive multi-sensory experience in which only 15 audience members per performance explore a dreamscape where every alcove corner and corridor has been transformed into a lushly designed world inspired by the life and writings of lewis carroll it offers an alice-like experience for audience members as they explore the rooms often by themselves in order to discover hidden scenes, encounter performers one-on-one, unearth clues that illuminate a shrouded history, use skeleton keys to gain access to guarded secrets, and imbibe elixirs custom-designed by one of New York City's foremost mixologists. End quote. Now, what that explanation doesn't tell you is that the lushly designed world is... A mental hospital! A big, creepy, empty mental hospital. It's creepy before it even starts, actually. We were at the mercy of the Sunday night train schedule in New York, so we got there quite early. And we walked by the address twice because it just looks like a spooky, abandoned building. When we figured out, oh wait, no, this is actually the place, the only indicator is a clipboard hanging from the door that says doors will open 15 minutes before showtime. Side note, the website for Then She Fell, or maybe an email they sent after I bought tickets, made it sound like the theater is in the middle of a fabulous neighborhood in trendy Williamsburg, full of restaurants and bars and activity. We did not find that to be the case. Maybe if we had walked just another few blocks in a different direction, we would have come across a cornucopia of culinary delights, but all we found was a rather deserted sports bar around the block, And the area was not particularly pleasant to wander around in at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, so I would not recommend getting there particularly early. When they do open the doors, a nurse checks you in. And she does actually check your ID because of those aforementioned custom-made elixirs by one of New York City's foremost mixologists. Almost all shows are 21+. plus. Occasionally they do an 18 and over, but most of the time you have to be 21 just to get in the door. So she checks you in ushers you to what looks like a hospital waiting room, and then you are given a set of keys and your first shot of medicine. You can turn down any drinks you want, by the way. They don't force you to imbibe. The first drink was the only one that tasted strong to me, which was cool because I felt like, okay, let's do this. Let's suck this down. Let's go to Wonderland. The other drinks throughout the night, there were four or five, I think, were, were really weak and in small test tube type thingies. You could hardly taste any alcohol, so don't worry, you're not going to leave there tanked. I went to the play with my husband, so we, along with the other 13 audience members, listened to the nurse tell us the rules. Don't speak unless you're spoken to, and don't open any closed doors. You're welcome to use your keys to open cabinets and padlocks and the like, but not doors. Then she started talking about Lewis Carroll and what was going to happen to us throughout the evening, but long before she was done, another nurse walked up to Matt and me and said, follow me, please, and we were the first ones out of the waiting room which was kind of a bummer. We wanted to hear what else the head nurse had to say, but we were shepherded to a corridor where we got to observe the Red Queen kind of having a freak out in a room by herself. By the way, I'm going to try not to give too terribly much away about what actually happens during Then She Fell. I get the feeling that the creators like to keep it shrouded in mystery. So for example, I may mention that there is a mad tea party scene, but I won't tell you specifically what goes on there. While we were observing the Red Queen, or maybe she was a Queen of Hearts, she seemed to be a combo of the two like a lot of modern day adaptations, there was some literature for us to read about Lorena Little, the real life Alice Little's mother. I've read some reviews of Then She Fell that stress, if you're not familiar with the Alice books or with Charles Dodson or the real life people who inspired the book, you're going to be totally lost. I totally disagree. As you guys are aware, I know more than any human being really needs to about the Littles and Charles Dodson and the Alice books. And I think that may have detracted from my enjoyment a teensy bit. While I was reading the literature about Mrs. Little during the first scene, I actually thought, "Whoa! I bet this would be really interesting to someone who doesn't know anything about the Littles. And throughout the night, instead of enjoying the mystery and just letting the vignettes kind of wash over me, I was trying to make sense of everything. And quite often, I'm pretty sure there was no sense to be made. That's my number one bit of advice for you, actually. If you're going to see Then She Fell, don't try to make too much sense of everything. Treat it like a Cirque du Soleil show. Just sit back, figuratively, as I mentioned, you're walking around. Sit back and marvel at the aesthetics, enjoy the performances, and give in to the dreamlike nature of the play. Otherwise, you'll find yourself wondering things like, wait a minute, why is the Red Queen about to get it on with the White Knight? That's not the White Knight, that's a White Rabbit? That makes even less sense. My second piece of advice, use those keys. If something seems like it's missing, use the keys and look for it. I had an instance of being left alone in a room to read a letter while listening to a recording of the Walrus and the Carpenter on a Victrola, so cool. One of the enclosures was missing from the letter, and I was all, oh dang, that's too bad that's missing. And then I just sat there, waiting for the next performer or nurse or whoever to enter the room. Then suddenly I realized, oh, dang, I should be looking for the missing piece of paper. And I set to work trying to unlock everything in the room, and I finally found it just as Lewis Carroll walked in. He told me to follow him, and I actually tried to take the letter with me, but he told me to leave it, so I'll never know what it said. So use those keys. It was fun seeing the difference throughout the night in the waiting room. There was only one audience member who was going around the room trying his keys in all the locks and we all just kind of stared at him like, huh, what's he doing? And by the end of the night when a group of us were left in a room without any performers, we all immediately started running around trying to open everything. So everyone learned the same lesson throughout the night. You may be wondering how I ended up in a room alone. Well, One of the most impressive feats of Then She Fell is how they move everyone around from room to room absolutely seamlessly. Sometimes you're alone, sometimes you're with others, sometimes you're with the person you came with, sometimes you're not, and somehow these logistical geniuses are keeping track of everyone and timing everything perfectly. I marveled at it several times during the show, which maybe the makers of Then She Fell (laughs) wouldn't be that happy to hear that, because that would mean I wasn't totally immersed in the experience, If I was thinking about logistics, in retrospect, there were a few instances that were obviously little time killers so that a room could be vacated or maybe a performer could get ready, such as when a nurse took me aside and asked how I was feeling and if I wanted a glass of water. But at the time, I didn't notice the stalling techniques at all. Back to the timeline of events, which is different for every audience member. My husband and I were taken out of the waiting room. We observed the Red Queen slash Mrs. Little for a while. Then the White Queen appeared and asked us if we liked tea. Of course, we said yes, and she brought us to a large room where first it was just us and the White Queen, then the Hatter and White Rabbit came in and did a scene, then a few other audience members were suddenly there, and then it was mad tea party time. oo Despite not being able to turn my mind off enough to not wonder, hey, what's the White Queen doing at the mad tea party? I still immensely enjoyed this scene. At one point, I actually thought to myself, I've been waiting for this my entire life. And at that exact moment, I made eye contact with the hatter who was sitting next to me, and he smiled, and it's like he knew exactly what I was thinking. After the tea party, Matt, that's my husband, and I were taken to another room by the White Queen, where she read us a bedtime story, the hatter made another appearance, then we were instructed to follow the hatter out. At this point, maybe 40 minutes in, that's an estimate, I didn't look at my watch, I heard a voice behind me say, follow me, sir, and I turned around to see my husband disappearing around a corner, so that was very spooky and nicely done. Hatter took me into a room where I recognized another audience member from the waiting room, and these three of us had a madcap time, trying on hats, taking dictation, and yes, had her ask me why a raven was like a writing desk, and you know I answered because there's a B in both and an N in neither, and I'm not sure uh, how much he appreciated that, honestly, but what are you gonna do? I really enjoyed this scene. I pretty much enjoyed every time I got to interact with the performer. Those are definitely the highlights of the play for me, but not so much when I was interacting with the White Queen. That's not at all the performer's fault. I just didn't really understand what her deal was what she was supposed to to represent she did not at all resemble the original white queen from looking glass which is fine but i just never really understood what she was talking about and that once again could be my issue trying to make too much sense of things after we exited the haberdashery that same audience member and i were brought into a small room where we discovered the play had two alices They did a lovely routine mimicking each other through a looking glass. Now, I think it is painfully obvious that one Alice was the real-life Alice Little, and the other Alice was the dream child Alice from the books. Painfully obvious. Absolutely without question. Hardly worth mentioning. However, I have not seen any other reviewers mention that. A few I read were of the opinion that one Alice was young, innocent Alice, and the other is sexually awakened Alice. Maybe they're right, there's no character list to refer to in the program, but my immediate thought was that it was Alice Little and Dream Alice, and several scenes throughout the night clearly supported that notion. So for the purposes of this review, that is what I'm going to refer to them as, real-life Alice and Dream Alice. After the double trouble looking glass scene came my absolute favorite moment of the entire night. And I learned later, not everybody gets this moment, so I feel very, very lucky. What happened was, Dream Alice wordlessly took me by the hand, led me into a room, shut the door, sat me in a chair, knelt down in front of me, and took out two teeny tiny drink-me bottles. Once again, my mind wandered to real life, and I thought, well, of course she chose me, the woman, to go in the room with her. She's not going to want to be kneeling alone two inches away from some strange man she's never met. But I digress. Dream Alice and I drank our drink-me bottles, and then right before my eyes, Alice grew tall and small. I'm not going to tell you how she did it. I don't even really know how she did it. But without any special effects, she grew so tall that her head was pressed against the ceiling. And then she shut up like a telescope so small that her chin hit her foot. It was absolutely amazing. And without question, the most magical moment of the night When it was time to leave our our little enchanted room, I wanted to say to Dream Alice, let's not go back out there, let's just stay here. But we weren't supposed to talk to the performers, and also I didn't want them to call security. The next few vignettes kind of went by in a blur. I painted some white roses red, which was lovely. And I had an encounter with Lewis Carroll himself. A troubled individual, it turns out. A melancholy scene overall. It was very visually arresting and moving, but all I kept thinking was, he has a beard. Why does Lewis Carroll have a beard? Also, his hair is super short, because apparently I I just can't have nice things. I believe at this point, I was brought to the basement. The basement is where things went a little awry for me. The reason I'm devoting a whole podcast episode to this play, besides the fact that it's an Alice in Wonderland podcast, and I thought you guys would want to know about an Alice in Wonderland play, is I've really been struggling to write a review of Then She Fell. I wanted to post a written review on the Alice is Everywhere blog, And every time I went to write it, it sounded really negative, and I couldn't figure out why. I was very impressed by the play overall. I had no problem with any of the performers. As I mentioned, it's an amazing logistical feat. But every time I put proverbial pen to paper, it just came out downright unenthusiastic. So I actually made an unscripted stream-of-consciousness-type recording, just going through the play again in my mind. And I quickly decided I couldn't possibly subject you to that. It was 45 minutes long and even more meandering than what you've been hearing today. But it was useful because I did work out during that podcast rough draft where my problems with Then She Fell lie. And they lie in the basement. When I descended into the basement, I was reunited with my husband and I think three other audience members. We all watched four pas de deux in a row. There's a lot of dance, and then she fell. I don't know if I've mentioned that yet. More ideas are conveyed with movement than words. The first pair to perform was Lewis Carroll and Dream Alice. It was ethereal and dreamlike and filled with longing. It took place on a staircase, which is really cool. And at the end, real Alice showed up and kind of put a kibosh on things. The next pair was the Red Queen and White Rabbit. It was somewhat violent and sexualized, and I didn't really get it, but it certainly held my attention. The next two were Lewis Carroll and real Alice, and mystery solved, this is the scene that did not sit well with me. Thank goodness I didn't see it first because that could have colored my whole then she fell experience. The scene starts with Lewis Carroll kneeling in church praying. Real Alice is a few pews away, and they are soon engaged in a very physical dance in which Alice is, crudely put, a tease. She's bouncing on his knee and jumping off. She's leading him on and then just out of his reach. And the entire tone just bothered me to no end. And I don't know why it did, because this is a play. (laughs) This is a work of fiction, loosely based on some 150-year-old books and the real-life people who inspired and created them. And I love seeing what creative interpretations people have of the books. I think it's wonderful to use them as a jumping-off point and create your own world. That doesn't bother me at all when adaptations of the books are not faithful to the original material. I even like that Once Upon a Time Alice series from a few years ago and that had genies and stuff. And I don't get upset when I see a Hollywood biopic of someone's life and everything isn't 100% accurate. I understand that Walk the Line and Man on the Moon and every Oliver Stone movie ever made, just for some examples, are entertainment and they are magnifying and embellishing events and personalities and they're not to be taken as fact. But I Personally feel protective of the real life people, Charles Dodson, and especially Alice Little. I recognize that's ridiculous. I never met them. I'm not a descendant of either of them. What does it matter to me how they are portrayed in a basement in Brooklyn? But people aren't always rational, and it does matter to me. To be clear, both Alice's and then she fell are portrayed by adults, very young looking, but you know, fully grown women. But in real life, Alice Little was aged approximately 5 to 11 years old when she had regular contact with Lewis Carroll. 5 to 11 years old. This is a very young girl, and any suggestion that she purposefully brought on any inappropriate feelings Lewis Carroll may or may not have had for her is absolutely vile to me. And maybe I'm overly sensitive to this because I've read multiple biographies of Lewis Carroll that I believe were written by dirtier old men than Lewis Carroll ever was, who often seemed to be of the opinion that, hey, you know little girls, you know, they like attention, they'll say anything. Alice may have let her mother think this or that just for fun. I mean, you know how charming and mischievous Alice is just by looking at pictures of her. I'm obviously paraphrasing, but I swear to you, not that much. And it's hard not to gag getting the words out. So this is the background I'm coming from. When I say, real Alice bouncing around on Lewis Carroll's knee, and then she fell. And maybe one of the creators of the play is listening right now. And maybe he or she is saying, whoa, that is not what we were going for at all. You are totally off base. We're talking in hypotheticals here. But if that is the case, it still doesn't make my interpretation wrong. We're all different. And an interpretation of or reaction to art can't be wrong. I was very eager to talk to my husband after the play, both to see which scene's he saw that I didn't, and vice versa, and also to hear the reaction of someone who doesn't have the copious knowledge that I do on the topic. It would be inaccurate to say he knows nothing about Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland, despite it not being a particular interest of his. Simply being married to me (laughs) exposes him to much more Wonderland than the average bear, just like I know a lot more about the Stanley Cup Islander teams than the average non-hockey fan simply by being married to him. Before I could even ask him anything, on our way out of the theater, Matt turns to me and says, well, guess they're on board for that whole pedophilia angle, huh? So I don't think my interpretation of events is too uh, outlandish. We compared and contrasted our experiences, and it sounds like he saw two scenes that I didn't. His alone time was with the real Alice, in which he brushed her hair, and she talked about being in love, or maybe not in love, with a prince. This would support my theory of Dream Alice and Real Alice, because Alice Little reportedly had a relationship with Prince Leopold at one point. The other scene he saw also supports Dream Alice versus Real Alice, as it involved the Red Queen slash Mrs. Little being domineering and yanking the real Alice's hair back all tight. I had the Drink Me scene that Matt didn't have, and also at some point Dream Alice and I watched Lewis Carroll through a keyhole, where he did a solo dance of some sort. I found it interesting, the alone time with the hatter that I loved so much, Matt found to be kind of annoying. He thought it was unnecessary comic relief. He was very impressed, like me, with the seamless way the staff slash performers moved us all from place to place, and he also remarked on the music, which I hadn't even thought about while I was in there, which shows that it was masterfully done. I believe the same music was being piped throughout the entire building. Yet, somehow, it went perfectly with every scene you happened to be watching. So the million dollar question. Do I recommend Then She Fell? I think I do. It's not cheap. Before I went, a few fellow members of the Lewis Carroll Society of North America told me it was the best $150 they ever spent. My opinion obviously isn't that effusive, but the play is a remarkable accomplishment. It can spark some really interesting conversation and debate. And if he goes on Sunday night, like I did, it's $95, not 150 And hello, I got to drink a Drink Me bottle with Alice. The other million dollar question is, how on earth am I going to write a review? I think I've been babbling for 30 minutes to you all, and that's not exactly pithy content for a blog. I think what I'm going to do is use illustrations of Alice through the years to show how I felt during certain parts of the play. When the white rabbit and I painted the roses red, I felt like this. And there's a Gwyneth Hudson illustration. When Alice and Lewis Carroll danced, I felt like this. And there's a Ralph Steadman. Something like that. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I felt like this is a therapy session for me today. We will get back to talking about Through the Looking Glass very soon. In the meantime, I would love to know if any of you have seen Then She Fell and what your thoughts are. You can leave comments on AliceIsEverywhere.com, use the contact form. Reach out on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr. Email me at heatheranalysiseverywhere.com, And if I don't hear from you, talk soon.